describe the church today. Not Thailand's church, but the big capital C church, all those who believe in Jesus Christ. I'm not sure that the word we chose would be the word one. And yet, when Paul writes to a divided church in Ephesus, this is what he insists upon, that in Jesus Christ, we are one. That's the reality. And now we have to figure out what that looks like in terms of our community. So I want to begin this morning by telling you a story. This is a new series we're entering into, by the way. We're going to be working through Ephesians. I don't yet have the, um, the weeks completely mapped out, but I will get you a reading schedule as soon as I can. I will say that this is one of those books of the Bible, which is a letter, and you would do well if you would like to hear it completely, to read it in one sitting. It takes a little bit more time, but it's not so long that that's not doable. I mean, it was written as a letter, and I've often said when we enter these uh, New Testament letters that we need to remember that none of us would get a letter from someone and probably read part of it and sit it, sit it aside for a while. I used to get these really long letters from my grandmother, pages and pages of handwritten. I would still, even as a, as a teen, I would read that entire letter in one sitting. It was from my grandma. So I would encourage you, if you want to hear Ephesians well, that would be something to do. But I want to begin by telling you a story about a church. This church is located within the most powerful nation on earth. It's a nation that's attempting to bring peace to the world through power and military presence and political influence. Those living in this nation are some of the richest people on earth. But there are also many while living among this wealth who are actually very poor. So there's a massive gap between those who have wealth and those who don't. And there are some people in this church who are very happy and comfortable with their position in life. They love their country. They support their military. They support their nation's leaders. And they believe that their nation has a divine mandate, an order from God. And they don't want things to change. But there are others in this church who are deeply concerned by the attempts to connect God with nation and military and wealth and power. They see those that stand up for godly values being silenced and imprisoned. Many of them are on the verge of joining a revolution of resistance to those in power. And on top of this, this church is very diverse. And the diversity brings with it a lot of racial tensions. In fact, when the church gathers together on Sundays... It's the only time that those of different races and those of different social classes actually spend time together other than occasionally running into each other in the course of their daily work. It's not just that there are different races, but they talk differently. They dress differently. They eat differently. They like different music. They have completely different ways of looking at the world. And if all of those tensions weren't enough, inside this church there's an even bigger issue. Some in the church thought that there were those among them that were too influenced by the culture around them 
and that these people are allowing it to compromise their morals. In other words, they're caving into the culture. They feel that these so-called Christians are in fact idolaters, meaning they're not really worshiping God. They're, they're turning their back on God's teaching and allowing the culture to guide their decisions. But then there's others who feel like that those ones who are, are saying they're idolaters, that they're actually hypocrites. In fact, not just hypocrites, that they're even atheists. Because while they claim to believe in God and they put on a really good show of being religious, these people cannot see how God could possibly be at work in all of the good things that are happening around them in their culture. They've separated themselves into their own little groups and little private lives while judging all of the others around them. So they seem as being very judgmental. Welcome to the church in the first century in Asia Minor, where Ephesus is located. Does it sound at all familiar? Do any of the themes ring true to our culture and the things that we go through today? I would say, yeah, a lot. I think we tend to uh, lift up the first century church and imagine it as being somehow perfect, somehow what we aspire to be and where we want to go. And whenever we begin to think like that or whenever someone says, uh, we reject any denominations or any of the stuff created in church history, um, we reject all of that. We're just going to have the New Testament and we're going to be like the New Testament church. And I say, well, which messed up church do you want to be like? Because almost every single letter Paul wrote, almost every letter we have in the New Testament was written primarily to address a problem and something that was going on within that church. Now, Ephesians is not um, as clear in that, in, in the sense that it's not like you can just point to one spot and say, well, clearly, you know, this is the, the, um, the one big issue that's going on. I, I, I can't even say that correctly. How should I phrase that? There is a big issue, and the issue has to do with being divided and all those things I talked about. All of those are big issues. But there's not one particular thing that has happened, I should say, that Paul is addressing. He's just more concerned with the fact that there's all of these big issues going on and that the church is not really able to be one in Christ. And so this is really the, the theme that we're going to be hearing as we move through Ephesians. I would like to read our scripture for today as we get into this, um, this letter for the first time. We're going to read Ephesians 1, 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are, and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us 
the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The letter to Ephesians is, if we just as a way of introduction, I want to let you all know this, that there is debate about whether it was written by Paul, and there's also debate about whether it was um, written to the church in Ephesus primarily. And the reasons for this are that maybe some of your Bibles will have a note, but that, that inscription at the beginning about being from Paul to the Ephesians was added in some of the later manuscripts. So our earliest manuscripts don't have that. But I tend to agree with the consensus that many have that um, this probably likely is a letter from Paul and was written to Ephesus, but not with the idea that it would be purely for that church. But this would be for the churches in that region. In other words, it's what we call a circular letter. And he did this in other occasions. He would write this in his letters and say, please share this with the other churches. But however it was written and to whomever it was written, it was clearly written to the church of the first century. And it was one of those letters that became so important for the church that it was preserved, it was copied. And then when the canon, when the scriptures were being put together in the 300s, this was one of those documents that the church said, this is so important to our life and our faith that we have to have it in our scriptures and so this is how Ephesians came to be something that we spend time reading today. I want to talk to you um, this morning about identity theft. Now this is something that we hear about occasionally in the news and from our Attorney General and all those kinds of things. My wife and I have been the victim of identity theft in, uh, in kind of a terrible way. And not a terrible way because we were able to stop it. But someone broke into the company where we applied for our last mortgage and got all of the documents. So you think about everything you provide for a mortgage in terms of your, your, you know, your salaries and where you work and your social security number, your tax records, your previous residences, addresses. I mean, they have everything, right? They took all of that, not just of ours, but of many people's. And so we uh, pretty quickly put a credit freeze on our accounts and that helped us but we already had people applying for credit cards in our name. Um, someone went to a Macy's in Spokane and applied for a credit card with my driver's license, apparently. Now, I have my driver's license, but that's how identity theft works, right? They had a number, they had made a forgery, apparently, and were claiming to be me. That's a terrible feeling, isn't it, to think that someone else could be running around doing things in your name? But there's a worse kind of identity theft. And it's the kind of identity theft that Paul is addressing in this gospel. It's an identity theft that happens when we begin to believe that our identity is wrapped up in something that doesn't truly define who we are. So in the case, the big picture case of what Paul's addressing here, you have a whole group of people called Gentiles and a whole group of people called Jews. And they have their identity wrapped up in who they are, both racially and spiritually, in their religious practices and in their cultural practices. And they have made that such a big part of their identity that they're finding it impossible to come together, not impossible, but very difficult to come together as one in Christ and to be the church together. But this happens in a lot of other ways as well. Identity theft can happen when 
we begin to put our identity in our job, or we put our identity in our income, these, when these things begin to define us primarily, this one becomes a problem, or our racial identity, or even our abilities and skills, the things we're good at, or our education, or where we live, our location, or our biological family, even that can be a form of identity theft if we're not careful. If these become the thing that define us. And when we do this, what happens is division and not unity. So I, had, I went to a Mariners game this week. And I had this interesting thing happen because I was thinking about, I've been reading Ephesians, and I was thinking about these issues. And we were watching um, one of the games against Houston where um, the Mariners won, which was great. Um, but there was, you know, a lot of Houston fans wearing their, their bright orange. And, you know, I, I, I was sitting in the aisle and you'd see these Houston fans come walking up. And, and I found myself kind of glowering at them. And then I, I catch myself, I go, what am I doing? Like, I don't even know these people. I just dislike them because they're rooting for the other team. Right? I mean, and this could happen when you go to a uh, high school football game here in Stanwood. And all of a sudden, you know, some of our closest friends who live in Marysville might be some of our enemies for, the game, for that game. Um, we do, anyone who's been around sports, we see this happening all the time. I think it's an easy, sort of low-hanging fruit in terms of something to pick. But you can see how, when we wrap up our identity too tightly in one thing that is not truly defiance, that it causes division in our life and it causes division in our relationships. So there's lots of different ways that we can fall to this kind of identity theft. The tension that's happening in the church here in Ephesians, and I, I mentioned this when I said there's sort of this blame casting of you're an atheist, and you're an idolater. It's, it's a little bit different than what we might think. Because in this case, those who were Jewish were looking at the Gentiles as being idolaters. Because they're coming out of this culture where they, they wear all kinds of religious symbols. And they have all these religious practices. And they believe in many gods. And even some of their parties are wrapped up in sort of an idol worship format. And a worship format of these gods and goddesses. And so, so much of their culture and their life has this sort of spiritual identity going through it. That for the, those who are Jewish and are, are you know, coming to worship with these Gentile Christians, their very dress and their mannerisms and so many things are deeply offensive to them because to them, it smacks of idolatry. You're not worshiping the one true God. For, for those Jewish believers, they're looking at these Gentiles, brothers brother and sisters, as being totally corrupt by the culture and possibly even unredeemable. And so there's a lot of tension. How much of the Jewish law do they have to obey? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to you know, learn to speak Hebrew? I mean, there's all these big questions that they're wrapped up with. But for the Gentile believers, it's actually the opposite. They're, they're saying they're Jewish brothers and sisters. They see them as atheists. Those who don't believe in gods. Now that may seem weird. I know this is a little hard for us to wrap our head around. Okay, but for them, this is so much a part of the culture. The spiritual life is all over. And what they see from the Jewish, the Jewish subculture, this minority group within their empire, they see them as being those who have nothing to do with anything spiritual. Which would seem odd, right? But this is the tension that they're bringing into this. And so then 
as, as these Gentile Christians are learning about what the scriptures teach and what they mean, and they're beginning to understand some of what their Jewish brothers and sisters, why they do the things they do, and it's beginning to, to make more sense to them, they begin to see them as hypocritical. Because they put on a, this is Jesus charged some of the Pharisees, some of the most serious, you know, obeyers of the law at the time, as being hypocrites. Because they see them as putting on a big show of it, but then it not transferring into their life, into the way they live. So there's this, there's this tension that's, that's going on that they're trying to reconcile, and they're trying to figure out. And it's in the middle of this that Paul writes this letter... And he drops this bomb. And he says, you Gentiles, you Jewish Christians, you're family. You're family. Oh my goodness. This is a radical idea. And I, I think we, we use it enough. We, you know, we have the word family up there. Um, that we sometimes forget this. And I, I, I say this all the time, but I think it's worth saying again. Whenever we talk about family, it brings up a lot of pain for us. Because our family um, is a place where we have these deep personal relationships, and yet that also brings the possibility of being deeply wounded by sinful people. And we're some of those people, and we have done some of the wounding. And so when we talk about family, I'm sure there were a lot of people who are thinking, I don't think I really want more family. But Paul uses this language. So as we read down in verse 5, he says, He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now Paul's going to go a step beyond this. He's going to say, you're not just family, but you're part of the same body. And we're going to look at that later. But what I want to bring up to you is that you can just imagine with these kinds of divisions and these kinds of tensions, that for Paul to say, you have all been adopted by the same father and now you're brothers and sisters, how hard that might be. Again, I think one of the things that we have a hard time understanding is just how divided they were in their daily life, where Jews would not associate with Gentiles, would not eat with them, would try to avoid them at all costs. And for Gentiles, their life is going to be completely wrapped up in this culture that is very much around idols and gods and goddesses who have been created by humans. And now they're believing that there's only one God, and Jesus, but they don't really know how to get their life unentangled from the rest of that and live differently. And so there's just this, this massive thing there to say, okay, now you're brothers and sisters. For a, a Gentile, a, a Roman Gentile, to you know, stand up in the street and say to the other you know, Greeks and Romans there, hey, this Jewish person is my brother or sister. That would be a very offensive thing, not just to the other Jews, but also to the other Gentiles. So this is a big deal, what Paul is saying. He's saying your identity does not come from any of these other things that you've been thinking define you. Your identity comes from the fact that you were destined. There's a God who, before the world was created, he had this plan to have you adopted into his family. All of you who are so different. I went to my Bailey family reunion this summer. 
family did. We haven't gotten together with my, that side of my family for many, many, many years. And it's sort of an odd thing because we, it was at my dad's house down in Oregon. And there's a lot of cousins that I haven't seen since we were, you know, probably eight, nine, ten years old. And aunts and uncles I, I haven't seen for years because they live far away. And then others, because there's been a lot of children born over the years who I've never even met. And so you walk into this thing, and there's some people, of course, who I am very close with and I know very well and I see often. And there's others who I've never seen before. But someone says, this is your family. And so you go up and you give that person a hug. And you, you just love them and care for them because someone said, your family. Isn't that strange? And we know that those family reunions can be kind of awkward for that reason. Because you know that you have to treat that person a certain way because they are your family, even if they're a complete stranger to you. And if we can do that with our biological family, then I believe we can begin to do this with our church family. This is what God has called us to. He says, you are to treat each other as brothers and sisters. And a lot of what we're going to see as we work through Ephesians is that he's going to be working this out. In fact, the plan, the plan, God's plan that he's, Paul's talking about here in verse 10, he says it's a plan for the fullness of time or the, the completeness for everything to come together. And he says it's a plan to gather all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, this is a family that continues to grow through adoption. This is God's plan. More and more people who are strangers to us would be adopted as our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not because we can do it, but because God can do it. That's God's plan. So it's more than just an idea. It's more than just something we put in our heads and say, well, that's an interesting idea. But it's, it's a call to a way of living and loving each other. So scripture isn't just meant to be a mental exercise. It's not just something that we, we don't just read Ephesians and we go, well, those are some interesting ideas. And I, and I love the history behind it. And I try to give you all that because I like all that stuff. But it's actually a call to live it out. One of the commentaries I was reading this last week on Ephesians was talking about the difference between uh, this, this, um, this letter being script and scripted. They said, in terms of script, it's a very interesting document. It's something you can study the literary style. Ephesians, unlike the others of Paul's writing, they think brought in a lot of early Christian hymn, hymns and liturgy. There's a lot of more poetry in Ephesians than in some of the other letters. And that way, it's kind of a script, and we can look at it, and we can talk about the history, and who it was written to, and um, study the words, and it's very interesting. But it's also scripted. In other words, it's like a, what you get when you go to a play and you're the actor or the actress. It's meant to be lived out, not just studied, not just heard. So the, I, when Paul says you've been adopted and this is God's plan for you, it doesn't just mean that we go, oh, well, that's a great idea. But it means, oh, this changes the way I live and the way I treat others. It's an interesting place to start. As we talk about Tidelands Church, we talk about new membership in the Presbyterian Church. It's an interesting place to start because after all, didn't every single one of us choose to be a part of this group? Didn't we all choose to come here? 
I mean, at one point, I chose to be ordained in the Presbyterian Church. So when we start there, we think, why would that make me family with these people? I just chose this. And this is where Paul says, yes, you think that you've just chosen this and you've moved into this, but actually this is God's plan for you. And that's what, when we engage in membership, we talk about this and we say, look, um, you may have come here because you just thought it was interesting or you saw a website or someone invited you, but what if you started to live as if this was God's plan for you to be a part of this community? How would you live? So yes, actually, not just this congregation, but all of these other churches who are worshiping at the same time right now in Stanford. God says it was part of my plan to have them there, and that makes you family with them, even though they're not Presbyterian. They're your family. And that means we have to begin living and treating them differently, doesn't it? It's an interesting place to start. I think the Ephesians could have asked the same question. Well, we heard this great message about the gospel, and we loved it, and we, and we wanted to respond to this, to this Jesus who you said saved us, and we did, and we prayed, and we were baptized, but why would that make me have to treat these people who I very much dislike, like my brother or sister? That is the hard part of the gospel. It is something that changes us, but then it changes us in the way we love others, in the way we live it out. So our challenge, I think, just this morning, I would just like to ask us this question. I've asked this question before when we think about mission in our community. But I just want to ask this question on a more simple level. What would it mean if all of us who are part of Tidelands Church began treating each other as family? Is there anything we would do differently, perhaps, than we have done so far? I think it's a very interesting question to ask. And if you have an unhealthy family, which many people come from unhealthy families. I think a question to ask would be, what would it be like if I began to treat them the way I've always wanted family to be and the way I've always known it should be? What would that look like? There's gonna be a lot more of this, not necessarily on family, but on this idea of unity, oneness. What does that mean? That whole corporate part of being in God's um, God's family and being chosen by Him. Let's pray. In some ways, Father, I feel like this is very comforting. You're saying this morning about how you take orphans and widows and you make them part of your family. And so it's comforting to think that you have given us so many more people to be a part of our lives and to care for us. But then we also recognize the, the huge challenge in that. Because we know that if we're to open ourselves up to more people, that just increases the risk of us being hurt. And yet this is what you've called us to. This is the, the purpose and the plan you've called us to. And None of us here have figured this all out. None of us have it right. In fact, we just so much need to hear this message today just as much as, just as, much as the church in Ephesus did. Lord, help us to know how you want us to live. Help us to be willing to listen and to care for those who are around us.
especially those who worship with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.